I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Chip Miller. John Kinzer is in Indianapolis. He was invited to be in the pit crew for a Porsche race up there. <laughs> so call him on his cell phone today, and if you hear race cars in the background, you'll know, you'll know what's going on, but it's good to be back with you. The students, I, I finished my 43rd lesson two weeks ago, and all the lessons I wrote are online at the uh, First Presbyterian Day School. They have all their academics. They're a paperless campus, essentially. So they are there uh, for future reference. And um, students from China and Vietnam are all back in their respective homes now for the summer. They will be returning all except one. He's going to go to school in Portland, no, Washington State next year, and there'll be eight new students uh, coming primarily from China that will be here in the, in the fall. But uh, let's look at uh, Psalm 73. I'll have a prayer for us in just a moment, but I invite you to turn to the Psalms. I think everybody has a Bible on your, your table. We were talking about the, uh, just a moment ago, and this isn't part of the Bible study, well, and it's certainly not part of the prayer. We were talking about the uh, ice storm back in uh, January and February, and I said, I've got a generator now. <laughs> Women don't get this, uh, so I want to I wanna educate you about generators for men. <laughs> no, <I'm> gonna... <laughs> Katie, you'll see. Um, how often do we lose power in Macon? How often, unless, don't, not those of you that live way out, but normally those that are on the grid in the city limits or in Bibb County, I mean, is it maybe once every couple of years for a few minutes or something? I mean, it's, usually, it's not like someplace where we have a constant problem of losing power. That doesn't matter to me. I got, I'm a guy, I got to have backup power at our house. And so when the storm was coming and they were saying, oh, all this is going to happen, uh, you know, the, the second wave of it, that we were supposed to get that was supposed to be worse than the first, uh, I go to Lowe's. I said, I want to go check on a generator, and uh, there are all these guys walking out. Of course, no women, just guys, and they've got generators. They're pushing on, and I go in, and the only one left is the demo model. <laughs> and there are more guys following me coming down the, uh, down the aisle. And uh, I go, I, then I went home, and I took the literature, and I made the mistake of leaving it out where my wife could see it. What are you looking at? Why do you want one of those? They just don't get it. I said, look, the power may go off, and I've got a family to protect, and I want to make sure that the Internet and TiVo and the television all work. <laughs> she said, we never lose power. You don't, you're not seeing the bigger picture here, Barbara. There are times you've got to be prepared. And uh, so... Uh, a couple of weeks later, I'm telling a friend of mine, I said, I, was look, I said, do you still have that portable generator? I'd worked on his a few years ago. He said, yeah, why are you asking? I said, well, I was looking at one. He said, no, here, you can have mine. That gives me a reason to buy one that will power my whole house. <laughs> I said, our wives just don't get it, do they? He said, no, they don't get it. I said, I get it. We understand perfectly what we're talking about. For those five minutes, once every five years, when the power goes off, we want to be ready. I don't want to be sitting in the dark. Uh, so let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll look at Psalm 73. Father, we thank you today for your provisions for us. We thank you for your word that we live in an uh, incredible time in history to be able to read, to be able to live essentially pain-free lives, to... 
um, gather without fear and oppression and to study your word. Thank you for this food, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned to our congregation I've been taking a course with uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and they've started an online uh, web-based curriculum, and this was the first course they had offered, and I was with 159 other people around the world. And we signed up, and we got in. It filled up, but we got in first and paid $159 and took this uh, course. And uh, I'm, I'm in the eighth week of a 12-week. Each week there's two to three lectures by their faculty from around the world, and it's been excellent on worldviews, on the historicity of Christianity and science, of historicity of the Bible. Uh, if you in any way deal with skeptics or have questions yourself, I can't recommend this high enough. Registration is now open. They're starting again next week. It's $199 now, and in my estimation, it's been worth every penny of it. Uh, you, take, you, you watch two or three video lectures a week at your own convenience. They're posted for a couple of weeks so you can go back if you get behind like I have. Last Friday and Saturday, I did two weeks of <laughs> catch-up. Then you take a quiz. It's about ten questions, and you can take it as many times as you need to. And then there's some bonus videos of them answering questions on college campuses in an apologetics-type setting. I remember uh, in seminary they told us, as far as uh, preparing for ministry, that we should be lifelong students of the Bible. Now, I think that's true of all Christians. We should make it our intent to be lifelong students uh, of the Scriptures. So as we uh, come to God's Word today, we recognize that it is His Word. And let's look at Psalm 73. A well-known psalm, last time I looked at this in any depth was a couple of years ago, and I want to bring two messages, one today and then I think it will be two weeks from today. John will be here next week, then I will do the next week. So this will be part one of two, is my intention, at the beginning of Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. One of my favorite television shows back in the 1970s and 80s was The Rockford Files. Anybody watch The Rockford Files? Y'all never heard of The Rockford Files at this table? Okay. (laughs) Jim Rockford, the main character, was an ex-con turned private investigator. And what made him unique was he was the the prototypical anti-hero. He was not the type of character that normally was in that role. He would run away from fights. He didn't like to fight. He'd rather fish than work. Uh, And he was aided by these uh, friends, Dennis Becker, who was a police detective. There was Angel, who had been his cowardly former cellmate when he was incarcerated. But I thought the most unique guest character, and he was only on there a few times on the show, was another private investigator named Lance White. And he was played by Tom Selleck. And they pitted him against Jim Rockford because he was everything Rockford was not. He was handsome, he was charming, he could do nothing wrong. He was cool. And Jim did not like him. And so the episodes were very funny because Rockford could do nothing right and Lance White could do nothing wrong. This is written by a man named Asaph. And he lived about 3,500 years ago. And he was a musician. He was a musician in the court of King David of Israel. He was in charge of the the worship music at the tent of meeting. And so along with King David, he composed several of the psalms. And this is one of those that he composed. And in this psalm, Asaph is looking out at the world, and what he sees bothers him. It bothers him a great deal because he sees that the godless by his observation, the godless are doing quite well, and the godly are not doing well at all. And as he observed this, it it bothers him a whole lot. And we read the cry of his heart in verse 13. He cries out, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. To use our words, he was saying, it has not paid to serve God. Good things are happening to bad people, Bad things are happening to good people, and the wicked prosper, and the godly have a hard time. Before I go any further, has that thought ever crossed your mind? Have you ever, as you look out at the world, people you know, people you don't know, and you watch those who don't seem to care about God, they may even defy God, and they seem to enjoy good health, big promotions, and uh, just can't seem to do anything wrong. They're the Lance Whites of the world, it would appear. Well, that's the question here in Psalm 73. Why is it that way? So just briefly, let's look uh, at a few of the highlights. We don't have time to go verse by verse, but we see the cause of his doubts at the very beginning. And he begins, though, with a conclusion. This is important. The very first verse is he's arriving at He's stating where he arrives at by the end of the psalm when he says, Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart, 
So that's where he's going in the psalm. He's already stating his conclusion at the beginning. It's a truth about God. It's foundational. It's as though he's going to, to say, I'm going to tell you about a story of how I arrived at this, but this is, this is where I've arrived. God is good. As children, many of us memorized a prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That is very good theology. You know that? That is foundational sound theology. God is great. Yes, he is. God is good. Of course, he is. Let us thank him for our food. But Asaph had almost lost this. And so you see in verse 2, but as for me, in other words, even though he's arrived at that conclusion, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. He had almost fallen away. I think another translation is I had almost slipped. He had almost lost his faith. And he compares, and this is where we get the word backsliding, because he's comparing the losing of faith to sliding backwards, to falling. Why was he almost falling? He tells us in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Simply put, Asaph was puzzled with the ways of God. Lord, why are you letting life go this way? He himself, from all indication, and we can assume it's true, was living a godly life. He was probably avoiding sin. He probably was meditating on God's word. He was probably examining his own life, and he was perhaps even spending time in prayer and confessing and forsaking sin. Yet although he was doing all this, he's having a great deal of trouble because when he looked at the ungodly, he sees a striking contrast. And he says, these men we know to be ungodly. They prosper in the world. They have wealth. They have no pains in their death. They're healthy and strong. They're not in trouble as other men. So what he sees from his observation defies what he thinks ought to be the case. And what he assumes is virtue ought to be rewarded and ungodliness ought to be punished. But in real life, it didn't look that way to Asaph. So his real problem is that he not only saw it. Are you still with me? How many of y'all have already finished dessert? I don't know. That, was, that little piece of cake was good. <laughs> it was just too little. Amen. Here's the thing. He didn't just see it. He was envious of it. Now that's at the root. That's what he says. I was envious of the arrogant. So he not only sees that there's a philosophical problem here. Why did the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous seem not to prosper? But then as he looked at this, he said, I want to be like them. He was envious of what he saw were the benefits the ungodly received. So Asaph observed that. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, it's, it's the rare person who doesn't. Um, our church is part, in the Presbyterian church, we have geographical areas called presbyteries. And different denominations have different things like that. But ours is called presbyteries. Ours used to include essentially from Augusta over to Columbus and everything south. So our, pres our church was in the same presbytery with churches in Savannah. And one of the things we try to do together as churches in a denominational sense is you fund ministries that aren't necessarily church-based. Like in Savannah, there's the International Seamen's House. That ministry's been there forever. It's in seaports all around the country, if not around the world. And they minister to, to seafarers from all that come to the Savannah port. 
And a lot of these people have great needs. They may just need a, a car to take them to Walmart or to give them a meal, or, and they would give them Bibles. So they, we, our presbytery would fund uh, helping to purchase Bibles in a variety of languages that could be given out, and we helped to fund the staff guy who was named Kurt Singleton there for many, many years. Kurt's dead now. But Kurt always had health problems, and he was, he was paid slave wages. I was on the committee that oversaw the work. And I'd never seen such a big-hearted, empathetic guy for total strangers from all around the world. And if you just, if I could freeze frame it and just look at Kurt and compare him with others that seem to not care anything about eternal matters but seem to have such easy lives, it's like, Lord, something's wrong here. Something is wrong. Why does this fellow seem always to be hurting and lacking and so forth, materially and physically, but over here, people that don't give a rip about this kind of spiritual destiny of many of these people, they seem to prosper. Well, the reality, let's go back to the psalm in verses 4 to 7. I won't reread it, but that is the reality, that the unbelievers do prosper. And he's honest, and he he kind of catalogs that they, they seem to have no problems. He, their bodies are fat and sleek. We may not see that as a compliment. Look, this was written in a time when most of the human population was half-starved most of the time. And fatness was a sign of wealth. No one, I mean, you couldn't gain weight because you barely had enough to get by. So he sees that. They're, they're blessed in that way. They are not in trouble as other men, it says in verse 5. They're free, apparently, from burdens that others have. And they seem to have easy lives, at least. And this is in Asaph's perception. We have to see. This is a man, he's telling us the way he saw it. 88-year-old Hugh Hefner. The guy became rich by selling pornography. In 1985, he suffered a stroke. He said it was a blessing in disguise because it enabled him to prepare to fight the religious fundamentalists. And I think about him, and I think about Keith Green. I don't know if you all even know that name. Keith Green was one of the early Christian, contemporary Christian musicians. And he was associated with a ministry called Last Days Ministries, in, based in Texas at that time. And he died in a plane crash at age 29 with two of their children. He and his wife, Melody, had several children. Two young children died in that plane crash with him. And there had been more than once I haven't thought, Lord, why do you leave Hefner and take him? Why not take him and leave this guy that was doing so much good? Am I sounding, am I, y'all look kind of shocked. Well, Asaph would have understood. If Asaph was here, he, he, he might even nod as I said that, because that was the way he felt. It bothered Asaph, and it may bother you. Verses 8 and 9, he says they mock, they set their mouths against the heavens. Verses 10 to 12, they have their followers. These are the people who are noted, they're quoted, they're promoted. They are portrayed as culturally relevant, the super-intelligent, the heroes of truth and freedom. And Christians are seen as nitwits, non-thinking bigots, and closed-minded fundamentalists, right? That's it. Uh, I uh, end this course with Robbie Zacharias and other things I've been reading the past year or two. There's a whole school of thought that you may be familiar with, the New Atheism. And it's got teeth. This is an aggressive movement. Uh, and in the past 15 years, and with YouTube and with online, it has just changed the rules of the game. And you've got guys like Richard Dawkins, 
uh, and you've got Sam Harris. These are leading representatives. Christopher Hitchens was one, but he died close to three years ago. And so it's gained all sorts of momentum. It's really a social movement. And it, it basically insists that religion is the cause of all the world's problems, all the world's evils, that God has never existed and that to believe in him is not only wicked and wrong, it's dangerous. So they're very aggressive on that. It says that the Christian faith should be wiped out, that science can explain everything. In Richard Dawkins, he wrote a bestseller in 2006. It was published in 2006 called The God Delusion. And in chapter 2, he pulls out all the stops. Now, I want to read you one sentence. I'm going to leave a few words out that I can't pronounce. He says this. Dawkins, in that book, says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's his description of God. That was one sentence and some of the words that I couldn't get. John Blanchard, a Christian writer, said that may be the most offensive and concentrated attack on God that's ever been printed. It's Psalm 73.9. Their mouths lay claim to the heavens, and their tongue takes possession of the earth. And Asaph watched this, and he said, people make blasphemous statements about God, and they still seem to live happy, blessed lives. And that was a problem. So as a conclusion in verses 13 and 14, is in all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, what's the point of being godly? We would put it this way, what's the advantage of being a Christian? If this is the way life is, what difference does it make? If those who are not Christians get what I want and I don't get it, why even follow God? And his conclusion troubles him. So in verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, he's saying, if I began to broadcast my conclusion to your people, I would have been, I would have been betraying you. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So he's troubled at his uh, mental journey. Y'all still with me? So the first half of this psalm, and we'll look at the second half next, next time, is he's describing what has happened to him. He's describing almost falling away from his faith. And the source was he observed people around him. There wasn't some deep intellectual question. It was just as he observed what life was like. What do we call this today? We call it doubt. Another word for doubt is unbelief. And God sees unbelief as sin. You realize that? That, that's pretty serious, and I think we as believers have to recognize that. It's a sign of the fall. You know, with God creating our ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, there they were perfect. And they loved God since they, like us, were created to do so. And the Bible tells us they were tempted by the devil. And the temptation he used was to doubt God's warning. Has he really said, you shall not eat and you'll surely die? But they disobeyed. They did die spiritually. They suffered the consequences of their crime against God, and that's passed down to us. 
And so over the centuries, we find God's people through the centuries and now doubting the character of God, doubting the promises of God. And the very ones that Jesus came to redeem, often we have difficulty believing certain things. So to reject the call of the gospel is to go in the path of unbelief. It's refusing to believe. So in 1 John 5, it says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. So where does unbelief come from? It it can come from our own minds. Uh, Others trying to produce it in you, trying to trip you up for whatever motive they have. Ultimately, it comes from the devil. That's where unbelief comes from. So how do we deal with our doubts? I want to speak to you now that would claim to be believers, followers of Christ, uh, and have doubts that maybe you've never spoken to another person. I know this. I'm 58. I'll be 59 in a couple of months. And I'm not totally, uh, totally always reflective. But I see now that the temptations I wrestle with, they've changed from 15 or 20 years ago. And I have to be careful because not, not thinking that I'm beyond that at all. They've moved more from sins of the flesh to sins of the mind. And doubt is always at the door. <laughs> it's kind of like each time something happens that's bad, evil, painful, something happens to a child that's abused or something. Those are the things that now, I, I really didn't deal with those 20, 30 years ago. In my Christian walk, I had plenty of other sins I was dealing with, but those weren't the main temptations. Now they seem to be more of that nature. That's why I'm taking the, that course. It's for my own benefit. Uh, dealing with your doubts. First, realize their existence. Monitor your own heart, brothers and sisters. You may think doubt is an issue of the mind, but it's really an issue of the heart. Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and so forth. And so doubt and unbelief lead to bad actions. Take your doubt seriously. What appears to be very small can become big in a hurry. I view doubt and unbelief like termites. (laughs) You never see them working. By the time you see them, it's pretty much too late, right? When they start flying in your house, (laughs) well, you should have called back months ago. It's damaging because it's so subtle. They don't move rapidly. Uh, you rarely see them. Uh, where's a fire? Hey, there's smoke. We've got to act right now. We can't wait uh, two weeks. I've got to do something now. If there's a flood, if you lose power, <laughs> you've got to do something right now. But termites? Doubt? Oh, I don't need to do anything. So I would urge you, if you're struggling with doubt, talk to a Christian brother or sister about it. And so I want to tell you something, and I'm not, you know, proud of it, but I'm wrestling with this, and I want you to pray for me. Third, do not underestimate your heart's proclivity for backsliding. If Asaph struggled with it, don't think that you and I can be above it. There was an edition of Table Talk magazine. I hope you all use that for devotions. And there was an article called Help for Our Unbelief. It said, when facing hard times, Christians sometimes discover that their faith has gradually been eroded by their circumstances. Though we are doing our best to stand upon the promises of God, we can sense that our feet are beginning to slip. 
Like the desperate father who met Jesus at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, we might find ourselves crying out, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Fifth, shore up the foundation. Spiritual, I'm almost finished, spiritual disciplines, you can't get away from it. Prayer, reading God's word, you can't know the ways of God without knowing the word of God. You need to read it, you need to hear it. Worship, engage your heart and your mind, supportive fellowship, read. We kind of said it around here many times, God wants you to get to know him. As you get to know him, you'll learn to love him. As you love him, you'll learn to trust him. And as you trust him, you'll learn to obey him. If you don't obey him, it's probably because you don't trust him. And if you don't trust him, it's probably because you don't love him. And if you don't love him, it's probably because you don't know him. So all of us have gone through these doubts, some perhaps now, some later. But the foundational truth, I think, is still back at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. God is good. Lewis, I, I wrote down several one-sentence quotations from theologians about the goodness of God. Louis Burkhoff said, because, because God is good, he deals kindly and generously with all his creatures. Jerry Bridges says, God's goodness is the preeminent expression of his glory. Matthew Henry said, he who feeds his birds will not starve his babies. William Steele said, God never tires of giving. A.W. Tozer said, it is not enough that we acknowledge God's infinite resources. We must believe also that he is infinitely generous to bestow them. William Tyndall said, God's goodness is the root of all goodness, and our goodness, if we have any, springs out of his goodness. And John Blanchard said, God gives not only generously, but genuinely, not only with an open hand, but with a full heart. I close with this. Philip Yancey wrote about the time he talked with a priest who had just performed the funeral of an eight-year-old girl. And the people of his parish had prayed and wept and shared the family's agony for more than a year as this girl fought a futile battle against cancer. And the funeral had strained the emotions and the energy, even that of the faith of the priest. And he said to Philip Yancey, what can I possibly say to her family? I have no solution to offer. What can I say? And he paused for a moment and then he said, I have no solution to their pain but I do have the answer. And Jesus Christ is the answer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are real and true, that you are involved in our lives, that you are involved in history, and there will come a day that you will make justice. You will bring justice to all the earth. And we know that we are deserving of your justice, and it would fall your wrath on punishment for our sins, of which they are many. So we plead the blood of your Son as a substitute as the one who died in our place, and your justice for us fell on him. And we thank you that through him we can know you. We pray you'd help us as we deal with doubt or unbelief or whatever every person sitting in here may be dealing with. And uh, help us to, to look to you, help us to lean on you for our understanding and trusting you to guide and direct our paths. In Jesus' name, amen.